you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a, a company on and in Kevin Daisy and he, he owns multiple companies and is, is venturing out into, into even more companies. I, I find it fascinating when people can, can do multiple things and, and still see success and see these grow. How many companies do you think is too many companies to own? And, and actually not just like from a stock perspective, but like actually yeah. have some sort of day-to-day presence in I don't know, man. That's t- that's a tough question. I mean, because I, I think it comes down to the individual for sure. Uh, some people, <laughs> some people is zero, right? Uh, some people it definitely is one. But uh, I think that the ability to delegate uh, and and maximize time uh, are certainly two things that you need to be able to do. What's your take? I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking of people that have really well documented processes and, you know, do they need to really be into, you know, the, the nitty gritty? Probably not. Yeah. Super I don't know. I, 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 a handful, maybe, I, I don't know. It, it seems, it seems like a handful is a lot. Um, especially in the early stage while you're still probably figuring some of that stuff out. Maybe if you're I overcapitalized, mean, that's, that makes things a lot easier. I, I don't know. It, it um, yeah. I mean, if you're raising, if you're raising money, uh, I think anything more than one is going to be super difficult. If you've got one that is, uh, you know, that you've kind of hit scale, so to speak, or if you're happy with it and you're not trying to, to raise, then that would be, you know, you can kind of let that one coast and then focus on the other one. I don't know. It'll be, it's, it's a great question. Yeah. So today's guest, Chris Lyons is one of those people who owns multiple businesses, started multiple businesses. Chris, you, you are you a William and Mary MBA? Correct. Yes. So is so is Tim, right? Tim, you got the yeah. MBA there, right? Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, do they teach? Hey, go run multiple business up there. Like, what 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 kind of shop are they running up there? Were they like, you know, it's hard enough to do one, uh, and here you are. You're like, let's let's go on to like business number seventeen. It seems like. <laughs> I don't think business school planted that seed, but okay. Um, it was something that I think you know hearing you guys talk about the challenges of running multiple businesses, I would definitely say that um, finding a good mate was super helpful in, in our ability to juggle multiple businesses. Um, you know, when I got my MBA, I, I did the night classes for five years and um, I would drive home from the peninsula to our home in Chesapeake and I'd hop on the phone with my wife and I'd tell her everything I told her. So, so we kind of got the two for one deal with, with the MBA. And, nice, and she's. I'm she's sure that helped with remembering. I'm sure that helped with remembering too, because there, there's they, they talk about how you only remember 25 percent of what you just learned, so then be able to to reciting reciting it back is really important. I take a ton sure. of notes when I feel like something is important from that perspective, just so that you you do remember and recall it. And so that that's that's interesting. So is she the the guru behind the business? Is she the one that wanted to start all these things because it's. Maybe we should have had her on the show and not you, Chris. I mean, is she is she the brains behind the operation? I mean, you say your mate is so important in this. She she's a key part, of, especially so when when we had the jewelry business and and COVID hit, and you know we we had the governor's orders to close our doors. That was when the the dog breeding business was was birthed. Um, that that was kind of catalyst to okay, hey, maybe since uh, you know the government can kind of arbitrarily shut down our business, maybe diversifying in something, you know, that can't be shut down as easily might be something to consider. So that, that happened in 2020, you know, you hear about COVID kind of starting all this innovation and, you know, entrepreneurship coming out of, of, you know, a a negative, this was something positive that came out of that negative. What, what year did you graduate from business school, Chris? 2016. And, that, and what were you doing at the time? Were you a, uh, an entrepreneur or a business owner at that point? So I was working for a custom home builder in, in marketing. Interesting. Was just a small business. Yeah, I cut, cut my teeth in the small business world. What and was then, Ashley doing then? Pardon me? What was Ashley doing then? Your wife? Staying home mom. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But the jewelry business was started by her out of our home in 2008. So she was... She was doing that on the side that that was kind of always in the background as I, you know, had my entrepreneurial up and down journey. That was that was something consistent that would always bring in a little bit money 
you know, when things were up and down. Dude, and, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated. How, how does one start a jewelry business? I mean, I would think, dude, I know nothing, but I would think that it's got to be capital intensive. You know, so how do you get started so that you can work your way up incrementally to high, like real high value stuff? How does that work? So we, we literally um, built a website. We had a home office. We would only see um, referrals and, and friends in their referrals. So we didn't meet with any strangers because of, of you know, the, the high security, high risk. And everything was based out of catalogs from um, suppliers we that would allow us to build a relationship with them out of a house and not out of a store. And so our suppliers were limited because not everybody wanted to work with, you know, just an individual. Um, but enough relationships, you know, were able to be formed where we had a pretty nice selection out of a catalog. And you'd come and we'd pick something out and, and, and bring it in for you to, to give us the thumbs up. So it was a couple of visits to buy something. A little bit more steps for our clients, but mm -hmm. the, the lack of overhead made our cost, you know, competitive, very competitive. What was That's the difference? With, and, and Tim, before he moved into, uh, I think what you would say, a walking traffic, non-destination location, he had this place out by the Virginia Beach courthouse, which I remember when I visited you this place, what, seven years ago, maybe I yeah. drove past it. Like I missed it. It was literally like a house. And so it's, it's, it's interesting. So you guys have a house, then you guys move to a house to run the business out of basically like, what was the decision there? And then how did you ultimately, we're, we're talking about Adele diamond, the, the first yep. you know business that, that you guys really had started, at least that I know of. And, and that is your, your typical jewelry store. Um, but, um, home, homegrown and how, how did you guys decide like, okay, I don't want to do this in the house anymore. We're going to, we're going to move to a, you know, a retail part. It was hundred percent. Um, the kids in the house that, that pushed <laughs> us to the home office, the, the, the office outside the house. And, and you're right, Zach, the building that we were running the business out of was a piece of property that that family owned. And it, it was the, the rent that was being asked kind of fit the bill with, with what we could afford. So it was just, a stepping stone towards the the final um, business model, which which is a, a small chain now of of brick and mortar stores in in prime locations. You know what's funny about that store now? It has you guys moved out of that that location, and I went to it. I had a, like a coffee meeting. It's like a little uh, bakery now, and or at least yep. it was you know three years ago. I don't know if uh, if it is after COVID and everything, but I was like, oh wait, I I've been here. This is funny. <laughs> Yeah, and and they and, and I've I've been out there supporting that business. Astrea Astrea Coffee, oh, okay. I believe yeah. it's called. Yeah, they're a good business. I check them out. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's a that's an interesting uh, story, just in the sense of Zach and I. We we talk to and uh, interact with dozens, if not hundreds, of founders, and everybody looks at that end goal first, and they're like, "I can't do anything until I get a bricks and mortar," whereas hearing what you were able to do just by starting from your home and then working to the point where you have multiple locations. I mean, that's a, that's a super valuable lesson for founders out there to hear, like, what can you do today and how can you, and then eventually work your way to that end goal. That that's a, that's super cool. Yeah. What, uh, in terms of like, how did that, so before the show, before we went live, we, uh, you talked about, all your jewelry repair gets there. How long did it take for you to bring on a someone to do those repairs? Or is that something that you and your wife do? Or is that just staff that you brought on over time? So I would say that jewelry stores out there, about, about half of them outsource the repair work because that's very specialized. And, you know, you, you have to go to school for many years to have the, have that gifting that those skills. And then about half, do that work in-house with an employee. So we we did that for about five or six years outsourced. And we got to a point where we wanted to really uh, maintain quality control and the speed of, of um, and the flexibility of, you know, putting this repair in front of this repair and, you know, uh, 
rush uh, needs and everything for clients. So we brought that in-house in about um, 2018, 2019, 2019, um, right when we opened our second location in Greenbrier, we brought that repair person in-house and it's really been able to take our business to the next level, being able to tell clients, hey, work's done on site. A, you know, even able to send a client to lunch and then, you know, come back and their ring, you know, is sized or their, you know, their jewelry is repaired. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another example of yeah, incremental growth. I love it. Well, so what do you do? Just run that number. You realize you're paying this guy what you could end up, but you're, you're, you're using the outsource guy or girl and you realize, okay, I'm paying them, you know, five X what I should be. I could hire someone like this to do this full time and you just look at the numbers. Exactly. Like exactly. The math didn't lie. And it was, it was very much a business decision as well as um, a, a benefit that, you know, when you're leaving your valuable somewhere for them to be able to say, Hey, it's going to stay on premises. It's not going to go out of our hands. That is increasing the trust factor with a client and, and in the jewelry business with, you know, irreplaceable heirlooms. The trust factor is a huge thing. I do think that businesses hire the wrong person too quickly from a full time position. And I think the way that you've done this is something that people really should should listen to and say, OK, hey, I don't need I need this person sometimes. So I should sometimes pay them, not I should pay them all the time when I need them sometimes. And I and, and I and I think that's a, a big lesson learned that people would see more success from. Yeah, it might cost you a little more in the long run, but obviously it's come full circle and, and you you had enough demand to, to do that, so. Yeah, if there's a way to ease your yourself into a relationship with someone that could be full-time, always try before you buy. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, like, it's just, it seems like when you, I mean, the shopping malls are kind of like a, they're just kind of dead anyway, at least around our area. Whereas you see all these corner, uh, you know, the intersection stores that used to be the K's and Jared's and all that stuff. All that stuff is like, they're going by the wayside. Is, is that because they carry too much inventory? Is it because that you all provide a better experience? Uh, the, the smaller run stores, you're thriving and it seems like they have challenges. Is, it, is there any rhyme or reason for that? I, um, I think we've definitely as, as a smaller business benefited from the cultural push in the last several years towards, you know, shop local and kind of everything like American express is doing and, and, and the, and, um, you guys, you know, and, and, and all the organizations that are promoting, you know, um, supporting, you know, your local businesses that's helped us. And I think the the chains have a difficulty because of the size of their business being um, uh, quick to to turn on a dime with with trends. So you know, jewelry business is a fashion business. Fashion businesses are all about you know staying up with the new trends, and so we're able to get a new style of, of merchandise in our store much quicker than uh, you know a. a, a a big chain with 4,000 stores is able to just because of our size. And so I think in the fashion business, uh, you know, smaller and more nimble can be an advantage. And we, we've definitely played to that advantage. To Tim's point about shopping malls, you have been at home, the next location, which is out by Virginia beach, definitely a destination location. No one's really going there unless, unless um, they knew about you before. Then you move to Hilltop. Then you open another one in Greenbrier. Now you're opening one in the Linhaven Mall in November of 2022. Is Linhaven Mall the only mall that's actually doing well here? How do you decide to go to a place where it seemingly is 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 dying? Because I mean, it, I went to MacArthur Mall the other day. I, I used that parking lot to go somewhere, and I walked through the mall, and it's you know, um, there's nothing there basically, right? Yeah. All they have is a little kiosk that people are annoying you to like try something, right? And that's it. Nothing yeah, else yeah. in there. I, I They did have a jewelry store, by the way. Uh, it was open. Um, like how you decide that this shopping mall, which seems like is dying, not necessarily just shopping malls in general. How you yeah. decide that, hey, like we're going to invest a lot of money to to do a build out here to do this because you have nice locations. You know, We're going to invest in more, more inventory. Mm -hmm. Like is, is that a risk? How did you figure out all that, that so that you don't screw yourself? 
We were weighing uh, between a shopping mall and a shopping center uh, like we have been doing. So we, we did kind of have to weigh pros and cons and we, we went with the shopping mall. And I think it ties back to um, the popularity of, of shopping, you know, at local smaller businesses. The um, Lynn Haven Mall's best pitch to us was that they are uh, trying to incorporate as much local flavor into their mix of retailers as possible. So not just be a mall full of chain stores that you can kind of go to the outlet mall and see, or you can go to MacArthur Mall and see, but actually have some uh, unique local businesses that give more of a local experience to the shoppers of the mall. And and that was part of their pitch to us. Like we, we have chains in our mall right now that are jewelers. We don't have a local jeweler. And they were able to work with us to make it affordable as a local business. And, and they gave us examples of other local businesses in the mall that make their mall a little more unique. So I think it's, it's all about the mall model has major challenges, but I think that their strategy is, is going to help them sustain, you know, further into the future than, than some malls that are, like you said, are dying around here. Yeah, it's sad in the sense of, uh, as I'm listening to this, because it's just multiple, yeah, there's there's multiple changes happening at multiple levels in terms of like customer customers are changing uh, their their habits. You're evolving to make sure that you're uh, meeting those challenges, and then malls have their set of changes that they're trying to uh, stay stay relevant uh yeah so it's it's yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really interesting from that standpoint from a clothes perspective remember 10 years ago we wouldn't buy something that we didn't go to a store at though right and now i feel like most people just buy all their stuff online and i think that's part of the evolution that you're talking about but with jewelry it seems like that hasn't really turned yet is that and i feel like that's kind of what you're you're getting at tim like there's some things like i'll buy my watch because it's garmin and it's whatever you know you'll buy your apple watch or yeah. your iWatch, whatever it's called like that seems to be okay and it's a normal but if you're trying to go buy a rolex somewhere you probably want to touch it you want to look at it if you're buying some earrings and they're expensive you don't want to buy that on amazon you want to go to a store and actually physically touch an engagement ring whatever etc like why hasn't that turned yet when it seems like everything else has I definitely think it's exactly what you just said, Zach. People want to touch and feel a piece of jewelry to know that they're getting what they are spending because it's a very small item for a very high price tag. Yeah, I'm not going to. That's, that's fair. About that. Yeah. And so, it, we, you know, when you're spending something, you know, thousands of dollars for something you you hope your significant other or yourself is going to enjoy for ten or twenty or fifty years, that's a big decision and. Just like um, I don't think you're going to buy, a, you know, your, your next pet online, you know, pick out your puppy from a picture like you want to have you want to see it, touch it, feel it and make sure that there's a connection there. And and a lot of our female clients like they'll feel a connection with a piece of jewelry and say, hey, it's in my hand. I love this. This is what I want. And um, so I don't try to understand all of it. I just I just work with it. So the key is don't go to the jewelry store so the girl can't touch the piece of jewelry and fall in love. Yeah, got it. Maybe not bring her. <laughs> got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Zach. I mean, in, in terms of how did you feel about the the overall experience with the the aura process? Uh, so my my wife just got an aura ring, Chris, which okay. is like a tracking thing. Yeah. Man, yeah. You know, you know her. Yeah. Um and uh, she had she actually brought it up. Uh, the process was well. See, see, I feel like it's very different. Like you have you're picking four colors and you got to figure out your size. That's about it, right? Right. And so from that perspective, I feel like it's like a Garmin watch. It's it's basically just another everyday. I, I don't even think of it as a piece of jewelry, even right. though it is a piece of jewelry. But that process is pick a color, and then we're going to send you this thing, and you guys figure out what size it is. Yeah, they said um, they so, send like a a three D printed sizing kit, yeah. um, and then you wear that piece of plastic for a day, and then once you figure out your size, then 
you put that into your online profile. I do think she would have liked there to have been half sizes and not just full sizes. So that was one because she was like, okay, like what hand am I going to put it on? Mm -hmm. And so um, certain fingers were different sizes. And so she had to figure out, okay, like where am I going to be in this situation? Um, But I mean, it was seamless. It was quick. It was easy. But I feel I feel like it is slightly different than, oh, I'm going to go buy this this custom piece of jewelry or, or fancy piece of jewelry where yeah. this is like, okay, get the silver, your size, I'm just, whatever. I'm just thinking about it from a uh, first principle standpoint. Like is, if that's a model that works, will we see more online uh, jewelers or more e-commerce style where they can just send a size and kit for a particular model of, uh, of jewelry and then ship out whatever size that you uh, decide upon. I don't know. You know, your example, Zach, was perfect because even though they simplified the process as much as possible with four options and then basic, you know, sizes, there was an evaluation process that she had to go through. What finger am I going to wear it on? Do they have half sizes? That a human being in front of her talking through that would have been helpful. So I think that's the difference buying in person is, is you've got an experienced consultant that, you know, helps her through those decisions that you you get online when you're when you're buying yeah. yeah i think their their push on that is 30 day money day back whatever you know if you if you hate it send it back we'll give you right. we'll a refund we'll resize it you know there's a way but at some point you're just like some people don't want to do returns right even yeah. if the, the thing is as simple as put it in a I box don't. put a sticker on it and put it in some people don't want to do that i i don't know why people don't want to do that i think it's easy but you know there is that that's customer service right you know, Amazon historically, as long as you're not gifted an item, it's very easy to return something, right? It's, I don't know. It, it, it'll be interesting to see because people are buying cars now online and just delivering them there. And so it's weird that jewelry is that one thing that still hasn't turned. Uh, and we'll, we'll see if it will. I never thought people would buy clothes the way that they, they do now, but they do. Yeah. Well, even, yeah, yeah even that there was some, uh, I, I just... Like Amazon was super uh, smart in the sense of innovative. Yeah, it seems like you can drop off your returns anywhere now. Uh, UPS stores, uh, Kohl's, or whatever. You know, they make a dollar forty. UPS stores make a dollar forty per transaction. We learned this year with Eddie. Um, so when someone has a return and they drop it off at the UPS store, Chris, they get a the UPS store gets a dollar forty from Amazon to distribute that return. Wow. It's a good income stream because there's always a lot of people like waiting to just drop off a package there. Yeah. And like they have like they're just a separate register uh, just for Amazon returns, at least at the UPS store that I go to. They don't at mine. And they also don't upsell me like Eddie's store does, which is what they should be doing. Like, hey, can we sell you something else? But I mean, you got I mean, how many how many there's got to be 50 to 100 of those things a day. I mean, that's easy money for them. They're already open. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and it's just a matter to scan in the uh, QR code or, or the barcode or whatever, and then it's you're good to go. Chris, I'm curious, have you heard or what your take is on? So Zach, like, there's a, there's companies like carbon capture companies, and what they do is they suck the carbon out of the air, and they get enough carbon, and then they compress that carbon to like manufacturer uh, manufacture diamonds. Uh, through carbon capture out of the air and um, you know it's it's like from what I hear the same quality diamond that kind of thing but it's just a an ex, uh, an accelerated man main process opposite of like it's not like cubic zirconia or anything like this I mean it's actual carbon which is made from you know that's what diamonds are made from have you have you heard about any of this Chris yeah so we carry those yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's been a big disruptor in the jewelry industry over the past yeah. three years. It, it was kind of always a fringe thing that, that consumers really didn't accept. But once a couple of big name jewelry stores picked up um, lab created or man grown diamonds and they're they are, like you said, not supposedly, but actually the real thing, the same thing. Um, it, it caught on. And, um, and so now I would say we've 
for every one natural diamond we sell, we sell one um, man, man, man. Interesting. Diamond. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's because it's, they're cheaper. In just a few years, I went 50, 50. Um, I, they are, they are, they used to, they used to not be, you know, as, as the, as the early adopters, you know, were purchasing the, the, they were kind of paying for the, the factories and the overhead. But now that, now that, that, that scale production has started, um, costs have went down quite a bit and they, they continue going down. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, uh, the other thing that's crazy, Zach, is like, as like the younger generation comes up and you know, the environment and, you know, carbon reduction and, and you yeah. big companies can get carbon uh, credits, uh, you know, as they move towards carbon neutral operations, it's like, the, that's just where the market is going. So it's just, it's like a win, win, win across the board. When so that, Younger kids are more frugal too. It seems like they don't care about money the same way that us old people do. What, what we're finding is that they're actually spending just as much or more and getting a bigger diamond. So right, instead, well then, instead the of like being, you know, the size yeah. of their mom's diamond, it's now double the size. And so they're, they're walking around to these big rocks on. That, but that's interesting. That that's super. Wow. So that's like almost like parody one-to-one -one, uh, that, that that's, that was fast. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, it's been a big change that we've, again, you know, we've been able to turn quicker and, um, uh, a local large diamond um, company just started carrying lab grown diamonds that we've been carrying for three years now. And, and, and you really, I would say, led the area in, in adopting and, and leading in sales of that one category, just because you know, our size, our size could permit that rapid adjustment. Fascinating. Hmm. Anything else about Adele or the jewelry industry that we should talk about before we move on to business number 17? <laughs> um no or maybe like what did you learn to from adele to to start another business like is it like is it getting easier yes absolutely the 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 iterations of learning that we've gone through you know from anywhere um from business management software to finding the right um cpa team to work with or legal team to work with, you know, all that uh, learning curve and all that, uh, you know, education, you're able to transfer right over um, to the next business, um, which helps, you know, helps the startup just immensely hit the ground running, you know, and, and not make, even if it's a completely different industry, not make the same mistakes. And so, you know, like most people, you know, you, 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 everyone wants you to learn from their mistakes and, you know, take their advice, but usually you have to trial and error yourself. Yeah. So if well, there's do, a Napoleon Hill book that talks about that, right. Where it's like, if, why wouldn't you take lessons from someone else and get three, three steps ahead? So you don't have to go through that, you know, that misery. And so if you, if you really think about it, you're just learning from yourself in that situation. Yeah. yeah. So when you announced that you were, what do you CMO, CFO? What what is it of votes? What is it? Yeah, marketing. Um, marketing. So when you announced that it was your CMO, it was on April first or right around April first. And I've known you for I don't know ten years, eight years. When you wrote that, I was like, "This is April Fool." I there's no way he's in this in in the cannabis industry, and I, and it was real. And so like, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that about you. I was I was shocked. Then I then you started posting about it a lot, and I was like, all right, well, this kid ain't lying. Like here I am, like <laughs> as as the king of what I think is April Fool's jokes. Um, you know, this past year I told people that um, I became a professional athlete or something like that, or triathlete. Okay, and they triathlete, believed it. yeah. You know, one year I told them I was getting my MBA at Virginia Tech. People just believe anything they see on the internet, but uh, it was a real thing for you, and so it just walk us through like the origins of, of getting into this. I really was shocked that you were into the whole cannabis industry. Like is there just, just, just give us the, the, the four one one or whatever. So going back to our earlier conversation about um, when I was finishing up my MBA and working for a local builder, I think that was when I was starting it. One of my coworkers at that company um, we stayed in contact and he was the gentleman that founded 
this um, industrial hemp company. Um, I invested in it back in 2020. And then fast forward to 2022, um, Ashley was coming back into the workforce. We, um, all our kids go now to a local private school. She was teaching them. So she had um, this availability to take her, her baby back over that she started um, back, back in 2008. So she jumped in to leading Adele and I uh, transitioned to, you know, and, and it was several months of a process for sure. I transitioned to um, joining uh, my, my good friend Ashton in this industrial hemp um, company. So early this year, it's, you know, it's, it's, it was um, really recent, really fresh. I'm still in that learning curve. What, what is an industrial hemp company? What, 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 what does that consist of? So, um, hemp and marijuana are, are two identical plants with different, um, chemical makeups. And so if you, if you take the marijuana side of the industry off the shelf and just look at hemp, then hemp for, um, industrial uses grown outdoors, you can uh, make bioplastics, biofuel, um, um, plywood and, you know, a, a clothing, thousands, tens of thousands of materials from the hemp plant. Um, when you're growing, you know, when you're in that supply chain for industrial use, you, you're considered in the industrial hemp industry. So we are at the very, very beginning of that supply chain, uh, growing in greenhouses seed for industrial use to be planted outdoors. Uh, but our growing is all um, done in a very engineered process indoors. And we're just growing the plants for the seed specifically to harvest the seed out of the, out of the flowers of the plant. And then you, and then you send that to someone else, they buy it and then they do whatever they want, make yeah, one so, of those 10,000 things with it. Yeah. Farmers somewhere in the country are buying our seed for their next crop. Usually sales occur in May, uh, May and June, April, May and June, and they're planting them um, and then growing their crop and then, processing it into some sort of final material. It could be, could be a shirt I'm wearing, um, or it could be a, a hemp brick. It could be a piece of plywood, um, depending on the part of the plant that you process and, and create something out of. Very interesting. Is it? Yeah. I, I, this is something I mean, I, I know nothing about this. So it's just, Same. I have so many questions. Like, is this something that is like, because hemp has been around for a, like, forever i mean like as, as i understand it like native americans you know leverage this stuff or textiles and whatnot so is, is this is this something that has always been legal or is this something that has recently changed mm -hmm. in order to to really commercialize this yes yeah, so so in the 30s um paper companies lobbied for hemp to become made illegal in the country because it was competing with their business and um, there was a couple of attempts to reintroduce it into, you know, our industrial uh, supply chain in the 70s and the 80s. But not until 2018 was a bill proposed and, and, and passed federally in all 50 states. Uh, it, was, it was the U.S. Farm Bill 2018 that permitted industrial hemp to be grown and, and sold in the United States separate from marijuana legislation, which is, which is state by state. This was a, this be, was a federal law that was passed four years ago. Which is, is what you produce could also not become one of those 10,000 products and become marijuana. If you will buy no. it for that reason. No, no, nope, no. Nope. It's just genetics don't work. Yeah. Man, I just, I just you have a, I you have a farm know. somewhere, right? That's, I mean, it's a, you have to buy a big yeah. piece of land and, and do all that. Missouri, Colorado, farms across the country. But how much of your time do you spend a day just educating people? I would imagine that just that's got to be a, a, a pretty large process. Uh, yeah, half half my day educating myself, and, and then the other half <laughs> passing on what I've learned. Oh, so back to your roots of the NBA, driving back home, talking to Ashley about it. You know, you're just telling other people about, it. hey, I just read this on the internet. Yeah, yeah. So 
you know, go, you know, going to our farm sites and talking with our, um, our growing team and our ag- agronomist and the, the uh, guys, you know, doing the day-to-day work has been very helpful for me to then, you know, go back to the office and, and kind of digest and uh, disseminate um, what we're, what we're doing. Um, because a lot of the information, just like with anything, but especially in this new industry, a lot of the information on the internet is, is conflicting. And so you can't just uh, Google um, answers and, and have some sort of verifiable data. It's, it's, so much of it out there is, is just, you know, someone's limited experience, someone's opinion. And so even um, industry standards are, are not yet established um, across the country. So there's, it's, they use the term, you know, the wild west, like this, this industry is, is, is just um, all over right now. And, and, and no systems or processes really have, have been established in scale and scale because everybody's kind of doing their own thing and the industry hasn't uh, melded and, and connected together in a meaningful way yet. And so that's, uh, you know, in, in some of the questions we talked about prior to the interview, um, one of the goals we have is to not just grow our product and sell our seed, but help connect the supply chain together that, um, will make us successful ultimately because if you know if 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 everybody's not working together to efficiently bring the product to you know, the end consumer, then us at the beginning of the chain you know are not going to get sales of our seed. So um, a lot of work is ahead of us and ahead of the whole industry to to kind of team up and work together because it's so new. One question that I've always had, I'm sorry, Zach, is uh. So like back in the day, I mean, like this area, Virginia, North Carolina, we we were just very known for tobacco. Uh, You know, we had the right soil for tobacco. Does that translate over to to hemp as well? We're not one of the um, best areas of the country with our humidity levels to grow hemp. Mm -hmm. Hemp was, um, fun historical fact, um, the first crop that was grown back in the early 1600s by, um, you know, the, the, the the, the guys that eventually founded America. Um, that was, that was what we came and planted. Um, everybody, everybody thinks, you know, tobacco, they kind of get that question wrong. Interesting. Uh, an overwhelming majority of businesses are sound are not the wild west. You know, your jewelry business, tens of thousands of jewelry businesses are in the world, right? So there is somewhere, somewhere, someone to talk to about that. And, but with this business, because it's so new and there's not a lot to, to go off of, I mean, where do you get where, help? Where do you find this stuff out to, to be able to make it a little less risky and not so, so expensive and, and, and scary? So what we've been learning is a lot of the research universities across the country have been um, doing research, although, you know, consumer-wise, not, um, you know, not a product they can buy and sell, but, um, you know, grants by the government to do research in the hemp industry. Uh, some of the contacts we found have eight, nine, 10 years under their belt already of research. And so we've been able to part- partner up with um, several um, Virginia Tech University of Kentucky to be able to um, glean some of their data on the economics of the industry, as well as the, you know, the um, biological engineering side. And in terms of like, uh, as you're working on this, on refining the seed, is that something that like, that's a continuous evolution as well, that you try to increase the, the quality of the seed over time? Absolutely. The, the quality as well as the output of seed per plant. So as we're working to grow on scale and sell on a larger scale, um, the amount of yield per plant is, is very um, can be a competitive advantage we're working to to build up. You can get anywhere from a thousand to five thousand seed on average for for one plant grown in a greenhouse. Um, but we've um, we're working on being able to, to do you know three, five, ten multiple of that um, wow. by how the plant is grown. So that's something that I've been learning about that's very, very interesting. 
Yeah. I've heard some local businesses that are doing the opposite that are uh, growing the marijuana side of it and how capital intensive that side is and how difficult it is. And so people are like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to start a pot farm, you know, and I'm going to start the business. Well, it's very apparently from a um, just a business perspective, there is like a, a state fee from something like that. And then just to grow it is very expensive, too. I mean, is that are you seeing any of that that? um those similar costs like where do you have to keep you you said you invest a little bit into the business yourself are you guys constantly on the raise um are you guys constantly raising funds for this like where, where are you on the aspect of financials of this yes yeah, so um we are constantly on the raise the the second generation of greenhouse that we have um designed is about a quarter million dollar building um and you know you can you can throw up a greenhouse for for thirty or forty thousand dollars, that's very basic. So, um, as time has progressed, we've you know understood even further um, the the capital requirements of further growth, and we are um, we are constantly raising. Yes, I took a break from raising to to have this conversation. <laughs> I'll be right back to it. <laughs> so, is this something that? Uh that you take the lessons learned from the jewelry business directly into this business in terms of how you scale, or are you guys just going all out, just raising and scaling as fast as you can? It's a, it's an entirely different animal. Um, and the different than, you know, our brick and mortar business where really to grow, it's all about additional locations. Um, we can grow and scale, you know, an entirely different manner with, new uh, uh, streams of income and new contacts, you know, across the globe and um, just, you know, kind of renting out a, a, a little bit bigger of an office. And so that's kind of what drew me to um, this startup outside of our existing family company, Adele, was the the scalability and the rate of growth potential um, was was large. Great question. Yeah. What? <laughs> oh, Zach. What's what's gone? What's on the whiteboard behind us? Anything secret? Um. Yep. You should say no. you should probably say no, just so we don't. You know, we don't. <laughs> no, nothing secret. I, I share I share an office with our um, our head of sales, and so I think it's a bunch of different sales leads he's working. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so in our onboard process, when we're uh, getting guests on, we ask a question like, what's something interesting about you? I've known you, like we said, I think I met you in 15, right? 2015, maybe, maybe even before then. Um, well, you had I'm gone to, didn't you go to a start Norfolk? Absolutely. Several. Yeah. Multiple. So probably, so probably even before that. So you guys were probably in the same room together. Yeah. I, I know that we've been in. The, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, maybe I knew this and I just forgot, but you were a D1 athlete. Yeah. Yeah. What'd track you do? Cross country at, uh, at Liberty. Really? Kicking butt in the, uh, in, in the track world. Yeah. What, what, um, what distance? The 800. That's hard. Yeah. That's tough. Uh, it's a tough long sprint. What, what, what was your best time? Um, one fifty one minute and 51 seconds that seems really fast <laughs> no i mean it's, yeah that's a uh a three 340 mile if uh so there was a so we were in the um big south conference i think they've now graduated to a, a more competitive conference but this was at the um ic4a indoor championships up in boston on a banked indoor track a 200 meter track of my, my fastest time i ran um so that was that was a that was a good race. Is that something? Do you prefer a two hundred meter track versus a four hundred meter track? No, you're constantly you're getting dizzy almost. Right, you're just constantly yeah. Turning turning. Yeah, I would think that doing eight laps would be more uh, difficult than uh, than running two. Yeah, I could never. I never bested that on an outdoor track. Or four laps versus two. Yeah. What's the the new one at Virginia Beach? At the what's that distance? Sports complex. Yeah, I think that's two hundred. That it's standard for an indoor track to be two hundred meters. Oh, is it and really? Is it, is it banked as well? I haven't been to it. That's the one at the conference center. Yeah, yeah, I haven't been. Yeah, to I, it. I, I, it's it's got blue track. That's all I know. 
Yeah, the the the, the, the better ones are banked. I think they went all out on that complex and, and put a bank track in there. Yeah, I think in order to do like uh, compete NCAA, like any big events, it has to be banked or else you're not eligible to host anything. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Do you, are you still into athletics in some capacity? Uh, I, I'm almost 40. And so to, to be able to compete in that master's level, uh, I have worked really hard to get back into shape so I can, I can start competing again, uh, at 40. So I've got about six months to, to go. I've, I've got a trainer. I'm at a gym uh-huh. four days a week. What um, gym weights I'm running, um, natural bodies, fitness, local business. Is that what the is the guy's name Chad? Yeah. Yeah, I saw him at a uh, Marketers Anonymous once. Is he your trainer too? He is. Yes. Cool. Yeah, good guy. Yeah, this is the time to jump, man. Uh, you know, if you can be on the early, uh, the early side of the the age oh. bracket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the probably the guys winning winning the competitions are that forty and forty one because. Yeah. Let's face it; like, our bodies are going downhill. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I was a coach of a swim team, we were always good when my best swimmers were at the top. So they were usually like, you know, 13, 14, 11, 12. Uh, it was it was it was crazy how when those kids were 12, when those kids were 14, we were we would win. And when they weren't, we wouldn't win as much. And so it, it is interesting how that works. And in this case, that being younger is is better. But yeah, yeah. Good for running, you. Right, yeah, I have not been running uh, at the extent of where I was about a year ago. I was running like 45 miles a week last year, and I'm not. Yeah, no, no, I have no, uh, no races booked at this point. It's a, it's a, it makes a big difference, man. You, if you got something you're training for, it's, uh, that's all it's the true. difference in the world. It's true. Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, the same deal, man. Like, uh, People totally like, oh, yeah, like when I was trying to qualify for Boston, I was like, man, I had to, I had to age up so that I could uh, be on that younger age bracket because, uh, man, it's it, it's tough as opposed to when you're on your, the upper, uh, upper end. So you run too, Tim. Cool. I do, yeah. Yeah, thank goodness for the uh, cooler temperatures, man. It makes uh, such a big difference out there. Man. That, that, Absolutely. Going back to the heat and the humidity, man, it's uh, – it's a grind. Yeah. So what, uh, so, and also what five kids, how, uh, how, so it sounds like a lot of communication going on internally within the household to, uh, to keep everything moving, moving in the yes. right direction. Yes. We run our life by the family Google calendar. Otherwise I, <laughs> yeah. I don't get anywhere on time. <laughs> well, I mean that, and, and again, that's it's that's super important. I, I tell everybody, I live and die by my calendar, and uh, most yeah. of the time I'm living. But man, there's sometimes if it's because if it's, and we tell our kids if it's not on the calendar, then it's just not happening, and uh, it's, so that's tough. My my daughter is cheering for um our her high school right now, and she always tells um her her mom and I the the day of or the day before, like, hey, there's a there's a football game tonight. I'll be cheering. Put it on the calendar, sweetie. I need to know. Like I, <laughs> but um, but yeah, five kids at home, uh, four to sixteen. They're they're all going to the um, the same school, which which you know, one drop off, one pick up. Um, we moved out there near Zach to to be near the school because extracurricular activities and friends and, and and yeah, it just was. We were driving out from Virginia Beach to Chesapeake three or four t- times a day just. Wow. Killing just over the bridge. Kill. Yeah. So now, now it's just over the bridge. Loving it. Yeah. But, um, but they, they're our motivation, you know, to work, work so hard is to really give them um, the best opportunities, and, you know, set them up for success in life. So, you know. Yeah. And yeah. toying, uh, toying with any, what, what's next? And what's, what's any new uh, ideas on the horizon? Or are you just standing pat with, uh, Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm a, I'll be a life, lifelong entrepreneur and, there are a few ideas that when the capital comes and is available, we'll, we'll kick off some, some new things. So are, are you just not, are you just a, a lifelong curious learner that, uh, that you just move from thing to thing or is, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's your secret? Absolutely. Absolutely. Lifelong learner, learner, and, um, always, uh, wanting to, um, 
see, you know, what, what new difference we can make in, in a market, you know, kind of di disrupting a, a market is, um, is always exciting to do, you know, and if I'm not excited about it, passionate about it, I, I don't want to do it anymore. So the pursuit of that is, is a big driver for me. One thing that I, I as we were talking, I, I recalled a conversation with you, several conversations with you, how you tried getting Adele more online and to do more of the transactions online. Did, did that ever start to work or did you uh, just move away off of it? Like, because we talked about how people buy a lot of stuff online now. You guys are mostly in, in person in store, but you, you had ideas and you saw that that could be the market. What, whatever happened with that? Did you just pivot off of it? Like where, where what was kind of the, the situation there? Yeah. When we, when I met you and we were in that, um, that office house, we started the business as a, or, or kind of scaled it to be an e-commerce business exclusively. And the pivot really was opening up a store, realizing that um, we couldn't really get traction to sell what our specialty was, which was bridal jewelry, engagement rings, wedding bands online. Most of the jewelry that was selling successfully online was like $200, $300 and below. And, and our niche, you know, was engagement rings. So um, we've, we've continued, we pivoted our um, e-commerce platform to Shopify back in 2017 or 18 and, you know, put all our products up there. And we occasionally get um, sales through our website, you know, maybe once a week. Uh, but uh, the, the push has definitely been expanding in brick and mortar and, um, and just keeping our online presence uh, sufficient. A lot of money put into that, though. Yeah, yeah. It, it, a lot of money went down the tube. Speaking of a lot of money, I, I'm just curious, is, is it still, what's the standard now with uh, engagement rings? What was it? What was the marketing push initially? One month salary or something no, like that? three was months. It? Three. Well, well, that's what I'm, so that's what I'm like, dude, I've been married 25 yeah. years now. I'm so like, things have gone up, obviously, since then. So three months, huh? It was three that's, when I got mine in 15. Yeah, yeah, that people still come in and talk about that. That's um, was that made up by the 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 industry? Or, of course, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No hardworking man ever ever walked into the store and said, <laughs> "I think three months is about right." Right, right. But man, it, but it, it had caught on. I mean, it's like it's just, it's just wow. That's a, I don't know. It's wild. Yeah, caught on because happy wife, happy life. You know, yes. they realize if yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. spoken like a true married man <laughs> hey i would like to take this opportunity to thank pinterest in like the, the year of like 2013 for somehow posting a picture that my wife put on some pin wall or whatever i go to chris in 2015 i said this is what my wife wants didn't have to have a conversation with her i knew that was the one showed him a picture and we got the damn ring. That's how it happened. Yep. You don't remember that? Yeah. So did you uh, sneak a sneak another ring in that uh, that you would wear on that finger to get the right size and all that stuff? What's what's the? How'd you work that those details out? I don't remember. I, hmm. I don't remember how we figured that out. Uh, and it might have been, it might have gotten whatever um, sized. Size. Yeah. 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 We we might have done something with that afterwards. Um, I don't remember. It fit her that day. I know that. I mean, whether or not that was the you know the absolute best fit, I, I don't I don't recall. Usually, it's not. We 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 always throw in one uh, ring sizing for free because about sixty percent of the time the guy's wrong. He'll say, "Oh, I, I feel like maybe I asked her mom, or hmm. like I went into her rings or something, or like I, you know, I I, I went into her email to see what size ring she might have bought. I don't know. I, I, I somehow I figured it out." I, I feel like it was pretty close. I, I don't, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Seven years. Hmm. No, no, no. It, so in that situation, knowing that this is such a personal and important scenario for people, I mean, how often are people screwing it up? How often are people guessing wrong and like there's a return in that? Like, what's your what's the policy on there? How do you how do you not screw yourself in that from a customer service perspective? Because the guys I think are are ultimately trying to do the right thing, the nice thing, and 
sometimes it just doesn't work from a, a ring size. The girl doesn't like it, whatever it might be. Like, how, how, how do you guys deal with that scenario? So we have um, one of our brand partners gives a one-year exchange policy on the setting up to one year if the guy, if, you know, if, if the buyer gets it wrong for their partner. And um, that is rarely used, but when uh, we do use that um, benefit, it, it's, it's a lifesaver because yeah, the, the worst thing is, um, you know, the, the, the recipient of the ring saying, Oh, I was thinking something a little different. And, and you know, the, the buyer having to pony up another couple of thousand dollars. So that's something that, is um is unique in the industry and um occasionally and it, it, it's it's a lifesaver but usually we work with the buyer to make sure that they have some sort of guidance in there you know that if they come in and say i have no clue what they want i'm just gonna come up with something myself we we really kind of discourage that and and, and encourage them to find you know the best friend the mom the sister somebody that um can lead them. And so that's part of, again, coming in, you know, and working with a professional is, is we, we um, save you from yourself sometimes uh, from making a poor uh, decision. I, that that's, it's almost fascinating to me that it's a, you would think that if you're willing to, that you're going to take a step that that's that big, you would know a little something, something about what you're, <laughs> what, what but it's like. the most unique piece of jewelry that they probably own right and then they want it to look a certain way i mean it, i think it was a hard I, I think what i would have chosen had i not had that help from pinterest i would have guessed wrong so i yeah. can totally see that scenario um i mean i know what colors to go by right like i know what colors she doesn't like but man but you guys made it yeah, simple and easy, so I, I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, what, what's something we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Um, the 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 doodle business. Yeah. How'd that get? How'd let's, that let's go? Let's talk puppies. You yeah, puppy yeah, 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 yeah. Right? You yeah, mentioned. Too. Yeah. And what what are your breeds of dogs? A black lab and a, um, a beagle, both from a rescue. Okay, black lab. So we can so, make some labradoodles. So, so is that is that what that's what your business? That's what they do. You uh, breed, yeah, so, with so poodles. My uh, my uh, wife's my mother in law when my wife was growing up bred poodles, and so that you know so in COVID when we were you know having kind of retail disruptions with the pandemic and everything. Um, this was, this was an idea that, that came from her. We flew out to South Dakota to pick up a poodle and, um, we had, we had planned on bringing the dog back on the plane, but at the last minute they said, uh, at the airport, they said, Hey, your paperwork is not correct. And, and her weight is off or something. So she can't get on the plane. So we ended up running a car and driving straight back from South Dakota to Virginia beach with our first dog in, uh, like, april or may of 2020 right in the middle of the worst of the pandemic and um and, and kicked off this this um additional business yeah haven's doodles so interesting it's I, I swear, like within the last i don't know year or two uh in our neighborhood like everybody's got a golden doodle i mean it's just like they are just everywhere so we're golden retriever people we, we like more golden than we do the doodle, but uh, I definitely see the benefits in, in the attraction to uh, to the crossbreeding with the poodles. Yeah. When everybody was at home, you know, they were either fixing up their house or look, you know, looking for companionship and, and purchasing puppies. So it just it seemed like the market was showing a trend for you know dog sales and specifically for doodles. And so we did our research and then said this is this is something we're going to try. And um, my sister-in-law got involved. She kind of runs our social media as well as uh, the the birthing process. And um, part of part of moving out to Chesapeake was having space and having a garage, you know, and and, and to to run the business. And so that continues to grow. And um, we, I don't think we're gonna 
we'll let that one go for a while. I think we'll we'll let that. So so even goes. though so even though it was started because people were at home during the pandemic, you have seen that the demand is still there when people are are not at home in the same way that they are. Yes, for a, for a um, high quality, you know, well bred dog with the testing of health and everything, J- just like anything, if you. Um, you can even get into an industry that's not necessarily strong, but have a strong business proposition, a strong business model and um, find success. So I think as long as we stick to the core values of having a high quality product at, you know, at a great price, then that customer base we established when it was a peak trend will, will continue referring us and giving us business as, as that, you know, frenzy dies down because it has, it has died down. Hmm. but it's still going well. But the supply and demand, if you think about it, I mean, there's only so many that you're, you're producing. I don't know what the right word is breeding. Um, yes. So it, it, you know, you, you only have to sell to so many. So from that perspective, it, it's probably helpful. So. Yeah. Yeah. Eight, eight to 12 dog litters and all the puppy buyers across the country. And there's a whole business of um, uh, flight nannies that will, will nanny your puppy from, you know, Norfolk International, a lot of times they're employees of the airline industry. They'll, they'll fly your puppy, you know, to, to wherever the buyer is for a few hundred dollars. And um, hmm. yeah, so most as long as they have the right paperwork and you're not stuck in South Dakota, they have to drive correct. to Virginia Beach, yes, of course. Yeah, they, right. they're, they're a pro at that. So I think most of our sales have, have been outside the state, the majority. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been it's been uh, quite the journey for you. I'm interested in what the next seven <laughs> years look like for you. I don't know what else. Um, maybe you're going to start breeding dinosaurs, bring them back to life. I don't know. Uh, it, it'll it'll be uh, quite interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next seven years of of, of what's next for you guys and uh, continued success. Yeah, thank you so much for the conversation today and, and having me on the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Absolutely. Peace.